Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, today we have with us another person from Australia. So this is and like from your past and from my past. Yes. But we had Rod Johnson last week from mm-hmm. Australia, and now we have Christopher Hunt from Hello. Australia. Where where in Australia are you, Christopher? And uh, welcome, just uh, yeah, just south of uh, Sydney uh, on the coast, a little, little place called Bulleye, um, nice. which is like very nice surfing and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's winter time there currently, so. We're enjoying summertime in Crested Butte, and you're, I don't, I don't know what you do in wintertime in, in uh, Australia. The Go skiing. Yeah, you go up to the mountains. <laughs> yeah, I've been to the mountains twice already, and nice. um, uh, I, we, we managed to uh, time it really, really well. Like, we went in July, and you normally don't get very good snow for us, you know, in terms of our conditions in July. And yeah, the we had terrible snow. snow in July here. Right. <laughs> but it was good. <laughs> But, hey, you get snow in July, right? <laughs> it, 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 it'll happen sometimes, yeah. 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 Actually, uh, so um, the snow was good, though? The skiing was good? And the, the skiing actually was really, really good, uh, you know, for – I have to sort of, you know, qualify that, you know, for, like, Australian conditions and so forth, you know. Um, but uh, it, it really actually was very, very good and um, nice. like, really enjoyed ourselves. And, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, it's also about getting together with family and my kids are kind of everywhere now, as we kind of just discussed. And so uh, it, it's really just getting together and hanging out and doing that kind of stuff. But I do want to bring right. something up. Um, so yes. I, I did listen to uh, uh, the podcast. In fact, I've been listening to quite a lot of your podcasts. Oh, and, thank uh, you. Yeah, no, they're, they're great, and I'm feeling a little intimidated. You've had some pretty amazing people on here. About <laughs> you amazing. are amazing, Christopher, which no, I'll do no, a proper no, introduction no. here in a minute. But. No, no, no. But anyway, um, so I was listening uh, there to Rod, and you guys were talking about, hey, Rod, you must come over to Crystal Butte again, you know, do some skiing, and you said it's all steep and stuff, right? And I'm thinking, oh, I've always wanted to go to Crystal Butte, obviously to see you guys, you know, but – um, you know, because of the attraction of skiing and so forth. And uh, James, do you remember when we went to Overnaw? In, I was uh, just thinking of Overnaw and the ski day that we had in Overnaw. It was my last day ever of snowboarding because it was the best day you could possibly ever have. And so okay. I was just like, I've reached the peak. Like, and so that's when I switched from snowboarding to skiing. I'm like, okay, time for a new challenge because I've there, it, snowboarding will never be better than the day that we skied together in Overnaw. In Switzerland. Didn't know that it was uh, such a, a momentous occasion. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. I mean, do you remember? So so what happened was there was this whole off-piste area of the ski area that no one was skiing. And there was like two feet of fresh powder on it. And we just traversed over. And when we first started, we would take this T-bar up. We'd traverse over just a little ways, ski down first tracks, all of us first tracks. We did it again, ski over just a little bit further, ski down first tracks. And we did this for hours, just all of us getting first tracks in this giant bowl. And it was just the most amazing thing ever. We just kept going, kept doing laps on this until until this area closed. It was it was exceptional. It was Such an amazing place, there. wasn't it? Right you know, you. As you, we should mention also Avranar is in uh, Switzerland, and we were there because we at TypeSafe had the Lausanne office, you know, which everyone wanted to go to for obvious reasons. Um, but I, at that point, that was my first visit there, and I had not skied for eleven years, right? 
And, uh, you know, I, I would say um, I certainly, of course, our mountains are not very high here and they don't seem to be as steep, right, or maybe not as long. And so not being on skis and then doing it, uh, you know, with an 11-year distance between the last time and then skiing in Switzerland is like being in freefall. And so <laughs> what I want to ask you is, um, is Crested Butte worse than that? <laughs> Uh, Crested Butte has a variety of terrain, but there is much of it that is significantly steeper and worse oh. than, than Overnos. Yeah. Overnos um, would be kind of the easy stuff on Crested Butte. Okay. I might come there in summertime then. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's <laughs> the mountain biking is amazing yeah. in the summertime. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so I should give a little bit of background. So Christopher and I worked together at TypeSafe. We, um, we had a lot, like a year or so, we worked together and, and actually built products together and uh, worked on the Play Framework stuff together and, and uh, really enjoyed working with Christopher. And um, he, uh, he did a lot for Play Framework and, and Scala. But, but your background was, was Java before that and and I think mostly like spring if I remember correctly yeah. uh, and then and then into the world of play framework and Scala um, and then and then we can talk about where from there but uh, it was so fun to work with you and and the reason why the really the big reason why I wanted to have you on you're amazing of course but the big reason is that you've gotten into rust lately and so um, and you always kind of say on Twitter to me that that you should check out rust you're gonna love rust all sorts of good things in Rust. And so I was like, you know, we got to have you on to, to talk about Rust. And so um, so that was, that was really the, the impetus for exactly. it. Yeah. yeah. But I do want to hear kind of your journey through programming and uh, to where you are now with, with Rust. And I'll give us some context, I think, to talk about, yeah, what you've learned and how, okay, uh, yeah. how that journey has gone. Well, that's a great intro. Thanks so much. And I think you're very generous. Um, so... You, you you mentioned then about when I joined TypeSafe, I was a, a Java programmer um, using um, Spring. Well, in fact, I worked at Spring Source under oh, that's right. VMware, yeah, with, yeah, which is, of course, where I met Rod and Ben Alex and, you know, yeah. some amazing other people. Um, and I joined Spring Source. I, I sought a, a position out there because I wanted to work with those two individuals in particular. Um, and I learned a great deal. And so when I landed at TypeSafe, I think I was the only guy they'd hired who did not know Scala or SBT or, you know, have been exposed to functional programming and so <laughs> forth. I, I was a, um, a happy, and I sincerely mean this, a happy Java developer at that point. Yeah. And Spring was my world. And I, I recall the first 12 weeks or so of my time there at TypeSafe being completely lost, feeling like <laughs> I know, knew absolutely nothing, you know. And at that point, I'd been programming for uh, 30 years, you know. Right. So it's it, What's you know, amazing is I felt the same way, you know. It's like even having known some Scala, 
I would ask for help to like Victor Klang or Josh Surrett, you know, these brilliant people. And a lot of times it would just make me feel really dumb because I'm like, like what they're saying makes no sense at all to me because they're just yeah. way too brilliant for me. And so, yeah, yeah it, it was, it was a hard place to work for somebody at, at my, you know, level of programming abilities. <laughs> Well, that that was never apparent, James. Let me just say that first of all. Um, oh, he's very good at that hiding. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretending to pretending to, pretending to understand. I just things. nod. He's super uh, good at. It. Yeah. No, no, uh -huh. he'll get up in front of an audience and explain things that he doesn't oh, fully yeah. understand. I and am then get told really that I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I have this little uh, running group. I, I, you know, I'm into my running, and uh, you know, they they love commenting on how I like to talk about shit that I don't, don't know anything about. You know, and <laughs> yeah. it's, it's something I'm very good at, and obviously that's what I'm doing here today with Russ. Naturally, um, <laughs> perfect. How <laughs> long I, have you been using Rust now? How long? Yeah. Yeah, um, I've been using Rust probably. Um, there was there was a bit of an on and off period. Um, I, I, it, Rust, I guess, has been part of my world for the last four years, and I would say that in the last uh, one and a half to two years, I've been using it full time, pretty much. Okay, but before we get to the details on that, though, I do want to hear about your journey to functional programming because at, while you were at TypeSafe, you actually did like make the transition to Scala and functional programming. And I'm sure that your code reviews initially from like Havoc Pennington, you know, where he's like, you know, this could be immutable, you know, whatever, like, yeah. like uh, that was maybe part of the journey. But anyways, I want to hear about, about yeah. that journey to functional programming. And then, cause I, I'm guessing that that is in some ways related to to Rust and and you know what how you use Rust and all that, but want to hear it, it all. Sort yeah, it sort of is, and I think this actually touches on another interesting point that I'm just going to keep in the back of my head for a second. Um, but the I, I did not have any difficulty with adopting Scala as a language. I would say you know, and actually I know. Again, in some previous podcasts, we've you know talked about a variety of languages and so forth. I thought I'd count up the number of languages that I've used in anger. Oh, well, yeah, over my uh, thirty-nine years it is since I've you know started programming there, and wow. I've used fifteen different programming languages in depth. Right? Wow. Um, is that, are you including so, like CSS and HTML and no, you know, all those no, I don't include no, those like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you know. I mean, not, I not SQL or no. regex. So, so if you expanded to, I don't know the those. I don't know. Some people would call them programming languages, but anyways, mm -hmm. languages, uh, yeah. computer instruction languages he means real languages real languages oh i don't want to get in trouble for calling uh uh i don't know some of these things not real languages but well we can boil programming down to the three things right which is sequence condition and iteration right so languages that support those three constructs huh. right? you know, if you want to include that i mean you could argue yeah. accessibility included that i don't know if i had that on my list or not you know but uh, there's some esoteric ones in there. I actually did a bit of COBOL for a while. And huh. yeah, uh, that was fun. And um, and then I did a strange language that digital equipment had called Dibol. 
huh. which was, you know, so COBOL, I think, had five or six different types of divisions in the code, and DIBOL had two, you know. Huh. Um, so it was uh, a programmer's, you know, a, the productive programmer's COBOL uh, yeah. at the time. Uh, and, you know, I sort of... Um, I did use a bit of closure. Uh, I've done a bit of uh, closure, which I really enjoyed. Um, is that the only Lisp on your list? It, it is, yeah. yeah. Lisp was kind of in my world very, very early on, but it um, it just kind of went over the top of me, you know, as to what it was about it that I, you know, is kind of useful, which I appreciate yeah. now, which, of course, is its expression. <laughs> right. You realize at some point, oh, that was actually good and brilliant. I just didn't have the frame of reference I to appreciate it. I had the same experience. It was just, it was, I was using it with uh, GNU Emacs. So I was using uh -huh. their their list yeah. and it was just this kind of weird language that but i didn't understand what i was doing which now yeah. if i looked at it i would have a much better idea yeah. of why things are the way they are have you done any have you done any closure yourself <clears throat> just i've you know read some code but it hasn't mm -hmm. i i don't i mean lisp syntax uh, i i try and get away from things that are kind of machine oriented rather than mm. human oriented. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like Lisp yeah. falls into that category. Yeah. Well, well, actually, I think you're right. And um, I think it's one of those um, languages uh, that are enjoyable to write code for, not so much reading code from, mm. you know, um, uh, whereas Python is the opposite, right? in a sense, you huh. know, because it's designed for readability and certainly has achieved that goal um, yeah. on Scala 3 also with without, with its significant indentation. You know, when, Mark, uh, when Martin introduced that, you know, I just thought he'd lost it, you know, and uh, I, <laughs> we had a chat. Uh, we, we Actually, a couple of years ago, we stayed with, with Martin. Our family stayed together. In, oh, nice. Uh, it's lovely. You know, it's great to see him. He's a good friend still. And, um, uh, yeah, and we talked at length about that and it kind of like all the light bulbs sort of came on as to why he actually did that. And I kind of feel it can be the next sort of Python perhaps, uh, yeah. in that regard, you know, because it has the same, same presentation. We've, um, we've been using that syntax in our, for our Scala 3 ZO book and I've just fallen in love with the syntax. I'm like, yeah. this is so nice it's really hard to go back to i obviously already liked syntax. it so. yeah yeah being yeah. python uh -huh. yeah what, yeah what are the most esoteric languages that you guys have used though? oh most esoteric i've been pretty mainstream I, assembly was probably the only one that that i would put in even near the realm of esoteric you know apl was, when i was a physics student at pomona college they actually had an apl machine yeah, and that, uh, APL was a well. A it's short for a programming language. So yeah. brilliant. That should tell you everything. Yeah. It was um, everything was symbols. So it was really for mathematicians and physicists huh. and everything. So you had to have yeah. a special keyboard, and at the time that was like custom made. You couldn't get a wow. you know off the shelf keyboard. And so the machine and the keyboard and everything, and the keys, you know, they had the Dell operator and the dots and the you know. So you were manipulating matrices and and uh, that's pretty esoteric. Um, yeah, it was. It was that's like, esoteric, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah it and does I. That. 
I think it was a, probably a functional language too. Now huh. that I think about it, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty it's sure designed for mathematicians. Yeah. unlikely. Yeah. Well, that's right. just it. I mean, oftentimes, you know, we use these things and then reflect on them and go, "Oh, hang on a second, that was functional, right?" You know, you could put mm-hmm. SQL into that category. You could, uh, to a degree, you could put X, XSLT into that category, most certainly. Um, yeah, you know, and then later in life you go, oh, okay, hang on, I can put, I can pigeonhole it over there now, right? Yeah, you start to see, you start to see the matrix, you know, like emerging. Yes. You're like, oh, now I see how this, this, uh, this thing that I've now learned what it is is actually in this place that was never described to me in that way. Which maybe with Rust we'll get into type classes, um, which would be a, one of those things where it's like now that I understand type classes, I look at Rust and I'm like, oh, that's type classes. And very few people, I think, in Rust call them type classes. But anyhow, well, let's it's get to that. Not, it's not banded around. Yeah, I think the thing terminology often confuses the picture as well, you know. Um, yeah. But a, another case in point was all those years ago with the Gang of Four and the Design Patterns book. I remember when that came out, you know, and look, reading it, and I loved it. I had it on my shelf for years. I've actually now finally, you know, departed with that book, you know. I think it's probably mostly lost its relevance to me. But at that time, it was wonderful to um, form a language through which we could communicate. Um, yeah. And actually, you guys talked about, I think it was you guys talked about UML a while ago as well. And yeah, at one point we talked about UML and the attempts to take UML and run it, runnable UML. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that was, and why, was do, why don't we use UML for modeling anymore? <laughs> Well, well, actually, I kind of do still. Actually, I look. I don't mind huh. admitting that. Um, yeah, but you know. didn't you before UML was a thing too? Didn't you draw boxes and arrows? This is it. So what UML did was to uh, unify that language, try and formalize it, so that we could spe- spend less time at the whiteboard dreaming how we should communicate this. Thing that I want to communicate to you. Like you're saying with Gang of Four, like it gave us just a standard communication, yeah. like the, the common vernacular for talking about things or common diagramming. Yeah, and it's as you lot. said, it unified, it unified the modeling language. Exactly. <laughs> right. Because you probably remember there was a, like pitched battles between the box people and the cloud people. Yep. You know, and that's the, the unification was that was the unification was that yes. you had, you know, you had these two separate groups and they were arguing about whether they should use boxes or clouds. Yeah. And whoever it was came along and said, we're going to hire all of you and that's going to unify this so we can move on. Rational. We ended was that rational, rational? Was rational. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. so we could move forward. And yes, boxes are obviously easier to draw. So. Yeah. But boy, the cloud people were just really committed to clouds. That was, was that, the unification. Was that Booch? Um, yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think Grady Booch was the cloud uh, proponent. Oh, he was on the cloud side. I huh. I could be wrong about yeah. that. I don't remember. But I mean, it was a whole kerfuffle, and mm. now we don't even talk. You know, it's like Y two K. 
Oh, the world is going to end. You know, it's yeah. like, what was what was that thing again? Yeah. I don't remember it. Oh, Except remember you were doing... probably programming COBOL at the time. Yeah, fixing yeah, COBOL. No, 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 a couple of days, <laughs> a bit older than that. Uh, but I, I do recall getting a few contracts around Y2K, uh, which were, um, you know, they were nice to have at that time for sure. Extremely you know? lucrative, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, so that was kind of Kept crazy. the economy afloat. Because panic <laughs> was involved. Developers fed for a while. Actually, okay, around, so, around that yeah, time, ahead. I just want to quickly interject. Around that time, um, I was programming uh, C in Palm OS for the Palm Pilot. That was oh, cool. oh nice. Yeah, wow. huh. that, that was and, my and that, in retrospect, you're like, it's no wonder that that device failed because the programming model was probably horrible. Well, actually not. I guess maybe no. not worse than Objective-C when the iPhone got programmability. I, well, I did a lot of Objective-C as well, right? So I'm bleeding out those 15 languages now. That I've yeah. Um, the, uh, no, the, the Palm OS it, or the Palm Pilot, you know, and then, I mean, it went through a number of acquisitions. In the end, my, my take on it is that the company lost its way from a leadership perspective. Right. It was that was really what happened there. And do you know that Palmer West lives today in te televisions? Um, Whoa, so it's terrifying. Yeah, I know. So I've got a couple of LG uh, TVs, LED TVs, and they're running Palm OS. Wow. You know? So uh, it, wow. it they're still making licensing royalties or something on. Palm OS. You know Somebody what we should is, start whoever, talking about? Some Rust. private equity. Company. Yeah, okay, sorry. Okay, but I, I do want to hear. That's a fascinating side note. I do want to hear about your your journey to functional programming in Scala, and because yeah. I think that that kind of sets up some of the rest stuff, maybe. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so I, I want to say so. So this is the thing that was in the back of my mind earlier that I'm pulling to the foreground now, and that is that. Um, when thinking about functional programming um, and languages and so forth, I think it's really, really important to uh, take that step back and think about why we do this, right? Why? So, for example, why functional programming in the first place? And yeah. I, I just think this is often lost in the discussion. Um, yeah. And at least for me, it is always it has always been about um, writing correct software, right? Mm -hmm. And having um, our tooling be able to assist us in so doing. Yeah. Now, functional programming is a way of doing that. I don't think it's the only way of doing that, and I think there are complementary ways of doing that as well. Um, but that's fundamentally uh, what it was about. And even, even before TypeSafe, where I got into uh, Scala, I was, um, gosh, I've forgotten, what's the Google collection library that they have? Guava. Guava. Right? Yeah. I was using Guava uh, for some time in my Java world. And so you're doing having, some immutability uh, before, before Scala, and so you had some experience with that right. paradigm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so um, you know, this notion of immutability wasn't at all foreign to me when I landed with Scala. When people started talking about monads and so forth, you know, then I got a little bit lost, right? Because yeah. I, I don't have that mathematical background. I don't think a lot of people do, right? And I think <laughs> you didn't do yeah. category theory in college. <laughs> 
yeah well that's it you know uh and it it just didn't seem kind of relevant relevant to the conversation um for me right but that's um i i think my 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 goals uh in terms of what i do in terms of my career are at a higher level than that um in terms of you know i must be a functional programmer and so forth right it is it is um i want to solve problems with computers and i want to solve them in the most correct way um that i can um while yeah. at the same time being practical about it too um you know we need to uh deliver these solutions they need to get done you know so uh, i i get more in, in a sense, I get more of a thrill talking about uh, what it is that I've created with these things than I do necessarily about the journey. It's not to say I don't get excited about that journey yeah. at all, right? But uh, I hope that's making some kind of sense, right? That I equate functional programming to a you know a, an important tool towards uh, software correctness. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's good to be to come back to that because. I kind of define myself by being a functional programming zealot. Um, and maybe you would more define yourself as being, I want programs that are correct and maybe functional programming is a way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of came to that same conclusion myself after struggling around. Cause, cause when people describe functional programming to you, they often fall into the details very quickly and yeah. don't really ask the high level question why are we i mean this is harder for me if i'm yeah. coming from a you know procedural object oriented kind of approach why am i going through all of this and yeah. unless you really make the case that oh we're trying to make you know it's all about code correctness yeah, it, it, it really is yeah it's hard yeah. to sell it if you don't be you know stay on that message yeah. Yeah. Making it, making it, and this is what our podcast is about is like, how do we make it easier to, to have better software? And to me, better, a big part of better software is more correct software, software that is like ver verifiably at compile time. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big part of it too, right? That, that leans back on that statement I made where um, we're falling back on our tool chains to support us in this. Yeah. I wouldn't, necessarily i mean i think that's also falling into a detail um i think verifiably correct some of that happens at compile time but then sometimes there's runtime stuff too you know yeah. so it's like yeah. any, correctness is the any the integration goal. can't be verified by a compiler mm -hmm. there's <laughs> yeah there's some of, things that there will um, always or, be there will always be bugs Right, we're always going to have these bugs. No matter, there will always be integrations. Like, what program doesn't have an integration with something? Yeah. <laughs> I think an important thing there to consider, perhaps, then is how we can also get into production um, with more confidence. Because when we get into, when we deploy to production, then we begin to learn, right? Mm. And we begin to understand what the uh, the flaws of our assumptions are. So we can write software correctly to our assumptions, but then we discover that our assumptions are not always correct, right? right. So we need to... I have no idea the user was going to put that in that input field. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I've uh, recently deployed 
a, a service into production. It's a little Rust-based service. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, it actually integrates with some JVM uh, services and so forth, you know, and very happy with, you know, it and deployed it, uh, into, got it into production. And I, so far, I think I've down to, I'm down to four production bugs, you know, that I've observed uh, through metrics, you know, in terms of wow. it not behaving as to my assumptions yeah. at that point. Right? Yeah. So uh, even with what I would call, call good tooling, you know, you, you know, it's not the end deal, right? Um, yeah. So I'm not. I don't think that uh, there's. You know, I think it's um, it's not it's worth chasing that, that goal. Yeah, I don't think it. You, you know, you can get that bug-free sort of software goal. That, that would be silly. Yeah. Right? But yeah. Um, it can help. It can help a lot. You know, yeah. and I think that uh, the more time, you have more confidence, less risk, is, is and and do it with less effort than uh, than probably NASA puts into having confidence that their rovers are going to work when they land on Mars. You know, well, that, isn't, like, isn't I, yeah, that takes a lot of effort. <laughs> it, it does take a lot, but look at the way SpaceX do things. Right. Um, you know, they, uh, sorry, you're going to get me onto rocketry now. I, I love <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. I love what SpaceX are doing, of course. Yeah. yeah. I love what NASA are doing. Um, I love what everyone's doing in space, but you know, they, you know, they, are, they have that culture, um, of failing fast. Right. Yeah. And, uh, that doesn't mean to say they're doing it wrong or anything like that, you know, but some of those assumptions they're making are this, you just don't know until you actually do it. Right. And, yeah. uh, and it was the same with the lunar, the first lunar landing. They'd never done yeah. that before. They discovered right. a whole lot they of learned stuff. Some things. Yeah. Yeah. They did learn some stuff, you know, and yeah. I love to talk about how the guidance system came overloaded and still managed to stay up. I mean, we talk about resiliency, you yeah. know, that thing was amazing, you know, the thought yeah. that went into that, um, you know, back then, but they still learn, right? And of course, yeah. you know, that's always yeah. going to be the case, you know, but, yeah. you know, don't yeah, having feedback loops. And sometimes your feedback loops are very close to you, you know, the compiler. And sometimes your feedback loops are further away, like in production. And sometimes they're really far away, like in Mars, but hopefully yeah. you have good feedback loops no matter what, what, uh, how far away they are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and com compile errors in Rust. We should probably just move to Rust because it yeah. keeps coming up. Compile okay. errors to me are, are one of those things where it's giving you really good feedback right away and yeah. makes such a huge difference. But so anyways, t let's go to Rust. Like, yeah. what is your, how did you get to Rust and why? Well, let's start with the why again, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I think that, again, is crucial. I see, you know, tweets, you know, about uh, Scala developers going to Rust and so forth uh, and then complaining that it's not Scala and, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, I never had that issue. Um, so for me, um, I have this massive bent on energy efficient efficiency right um i have because it for, of the domain that you're that you're working in or just like uh, you're concerned about the climate or yeah so it came from the climate originally and in fact actually huh. one of the reasons i left type safe stroke light band was because uh, i mean i was having a great time there right and it was it was a great job great people and I was very concerned about my skiing career if I'd left, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, I'd have nowhere to ski around the planet. Um, yeah. 
So, uh, you know, lots lots of difficult uh, decision making, but it came down to uh, it, it for me personally, it didn't feel uh, relevant anymore because, well, no one around me could understand what it was that I did. And uh, my, my kids can understand, you know, and, and this kind of bothered me a little bit, right? So, um, you know, I remember my son being asked, I'll, I'll get on to Rust in a minute, I promise, you know, yeah. but I remember my son being asked uh, at school, uh, you know, what well, they all ran a class saying, what do your parents do for a living and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, one kid gets up, my dad's a builder, my mum's a teacher and got to Hugo, my oldest boy, and he goes, my dad's a nerd. Right. That's 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 what you know yeah. we could sort of use to describe. He didn't what I say, did. oh, he builds actor systems for build tools that take web resources and process them into a pipeline. That that wasn't his he answer. He knows you're a computer programmer, right? He does know I'm a computer programmer. I did. So we could have said in. that. Well, you, you could, but it, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I I just got to the point in my life where I just felt that I wanted to make some meaningful contribution back somehow right something important right so at that point i decided not Did you knowing stare what, into the abyss is that what happened and uh, the abyss stared back <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't quite an abyss i think i was looking at the ocean at the time sounds um, existential yeah <laughs> Um, and I, I, anyway, I made a, anyhow, I made a decision, uh, not knowing how I was going to do this, that I was going to move into the domains of agriculture or energy or both somehow. And I didn't know what the next move was, but I left t- uh, Lightband at that point, um, not knowing what my next move was. And then in the course of that, I ended up, um, doing a gig with Cisco. And it was a great gig, actually, um, where they effectively um, kick-started my company now, uh, Titan Class. Uh, they invested in us originally, and uh, we developed this platform for agricultural IoT. And, huh. um, and you know, we this platform had it ran at the edge, and it also had to run in a very energy-efficient way. Um, it was a single atom processor with a gig of RAM, and uh, I, yeah, yeah, so ba- we had barely a core to work with, and we squeezed the JVM into that environment, and huh. um, we managed to get it to the point of having, I think we ran about six or seven in quotes, microservices running in about 500 meg of RAM. Um, you know, so we really squeeze things down. There's some tools and techniques that you can use to do that. Um, and this is before Grail VM as well. Yeah. Uh, so we uh, have a, a project that's still there called Landlord, uh, you know, if you're interested in looking at all, you know, but it's um, at the end of the day, it was just all too hard. And we made the decision to use the JVM for that platform for Cisco at that time because it was um, it was proven technology, you know, given ACA and so forth. Um, it had strong communities associated with it. And that was the focus, right? It's like, how do we build and promote a platform? We don't go and reinvent the wheel. We basically consolidate what's out there and um, leverage the existing communities. So that was the focus of that. Um, and at the time, it, Rust was probably pretty early. So you yeah. maybe could have done Go, but 
Yeah, true. Um, well, actually, we did actually end up writing some Rust uh, for that platform. Um, okay. But that, that did come a little bit later. Again, I think the reasons that we had were good reasons. We, we made the right decisions at that point in time, but it was hard. It was really, really hard work. And, um, and so, you know, it, it, it became obvious quickly that if we wanted to do stuff at the edge, then we would have to go beyond the JVM. Right. When you say at and the so, edge, you're talking about on these like very constrained devices that are, you know, doing a bunch of sensor stuff, whatever. And yeah, yeah, you know, and um, and, and you know, this this was kind of difficult for me because I wanted, I I, I loved, and I still love Scala, right? Um, but I had this incredible emotional bond to it which i think is problematic in our industry that we form yeah. these these attachments uh to technology and you know at the end of the day my feeling is that it holds us back um yeah. more than anything else you know um i think they're part of our identity like i, I definitely hmm. feel like the programming languages that i've worked with i've identified myself by them and as part of those communities and and yeah, yeah. It definitely frames then how i see other technologies so so you yeah. could have moved to c plus plus right mm. for this I did project a lot of c, yeah i did a lot of c plus i've done a lot of c plus plus in my time if i look back over all of my years of programming i've probably done the majority of it in c plus plus okay so in that why wasn't wasn't that an option um well, I mean, obviously, see, it, it, it didn't satisfy those original decisions that we sort of made. And uh, what we found, what I found also with the, the Rust community very, very early on was that it was very welcoming. And this is a huge thing. I think when looking to adopt any open source technology, you know, you're looking at some library or whatever you want to use, you, you're looking for some activity around it as well you want to see some engagement there from it depends obviously on what it is naturally um but that's that's always been important to me and um I, you know it and i have to add as well so um jason longshore who's my colleague at the time there he he introduced me to to rust as well right so um I was, mentoring or some help along the way into yeah, that world yeah definitely yeah and um you know i think that uh you know well i said earlier you know as a happy java developer i was never really a happy c++ programmer to be honest with you i'm not trying to uh, you know diss c++ here at all i don't want to diss anything right you know because um i think there's a lot of goodness out there in in, in everything but I, I remember, you know, with C++, you had the, the laws of the big three. You know, if you had a virtual destructor, then you had to have a virtual... Uh, I can't remember what the laws are now. You no, know, I don't was, either. I used to... I used to have it just right at my fingertips. Yeah, I know. Operator yeah. overloading, you had to deal with the stack and the heap and all that kind of stuff, yeah. But you know, see, now that initially, when I look at Rust, yeah. uh, it has very nice readable syntax, etc., but the idea of being, as James puts it, a human garbage collector makes me feel like I'm stuck in that same world as in the the fiddly stuff in C++. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, so 
So my view uh, on that is uh, a while ago, um, I keep reflecting on the past here, of course, uh, we had Corba. Remember Corba? Yes, um, I do. You know, yeah, okay. So Corba was you know, originally built, I think, on top of Sun RPC. And I remember uh, seeing the first time I used, uh, when I was a C developer uh, quite a lot, um, I saw Sun RPC and I thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, I can abstract over the network and not think about it. How good is that, right? And then over time, we eventually realized that was a mistake that it was actually important to recognize that you're dealing with a network. Um, when it comes to memory, I feel the same way, um, that you should not um, feel comfortable in handing that management of memory to something else. Uh, this, this actually takes us down a bit of a wobbly path around my feelings on garbage collection, right? And <laughs> I uh, controversially thought for some time that we, we, we might ultimately recognize that as a mistake also um, because it's empowering to uh, be able to manage memory, not to the degree that we do with C, you know, where we have to, uh, I mean, we can really shoot ourselves in the foot, right? The compiler is not doing a great deal to help you uh, remember that you must free something necessarily. Um, but languages uh, like Rust really do take care of that problem for you, right? It's, uh, it's, so it's able to bring memory management to the foreground again, but not make, make it a pain to deal with. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm at least probably... a programming model around it, which which is better than than having to be 100 percent responsible for allocation and deallocation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it 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 helps prevent you from shooting yourself in the foot, and I don't want to say that it eliminates that, right? Because you can certainly still do bad things, um, but. Um, did you the, did you ever struggle with learning the borrow checker stuff or no no, no. so it, it came pretty easily yeah it came pretty easily and uh you know uh, a lot of people talk about the borrow checker when they they talk about rust and they you know they oh you're gonna have to get used to the borrow checker you know and uh, you know and ownership and that kind of stuff and honestly um that that wasn't that wasn't an issue. Um, perhaps what was really foreign to me that has taken some time and effort to deal with are the, the concepts of lifetimes. So you have lifetimes as a concept in Rust as well, which apparently, if you are a developer of a compiler, you're used to this sort of stuff. But this is it's brought lifetimes to the foreground also, and that. Um, that has a few rough edges on it. You know, that, that, that takes some effort, I think, to, uh, to, to grapple, right? But, but again, I think that, and I've probably just done this myself, you know, I've sort of made it sound worse than what it actually is. In, in, a summary, in summary, though, I think that um, memory, managing memory makes you aware of memory. And uh, being aware of memory, it's like, you know, in your, in your home, if you're aware of the power that you're consuming at that point in time, you will probably consume less. Okay. Uh, you're, you know, so the, there's a great advantage in Come being aware. I, I, I don't like how in our industry, we just keep burying things, uh, you know, in layers and layers and layers. I think, um, 
I think that that actually leads to problems. So I'll get an, a, a concrete, uh, hopefully a concrete example is in uh, in uh, on the JVM. You know, whenever you want to optimize something, you actually end up working around a garbage collector, <laughs> yeah. right? And you go, well, hang on, unsafe, yeah. <laughs> What's the point of this? Land yeah. And get start managing memory on your own is is what, yeah. what happens inside of Netty and other tools, Akka, and uh, yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're like, yeah, let's get around the, the memory management that the JVM is giving to me to optimize this. Yeah, let's start doing things off the heap and, you know, so we have a little more control again. Well, how about we just make memory management first-class concern again, but we'll make it easier for you to do it, right? And yeah. that's the thrust of it uh, with with Rust is is my take on it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so given all your your languages and Rust being your number fifteenth or something around there, um, what what were the things that were hard? What are other things that were hard or or easy or surprising in the language that you encountered? Yeah, so um, async. You know, uh, so Bruce, I know this is this is. Yeah, I can see your ears pricking up. No one else can, of course. They, but maybe they can hear them pricking up or whatever. Um, but uh, async await um, in Rust is both a beautiful thing and also has rough edges. Okay, so you know, you, I found myself quickly getting myself into situations where, what do you mean I can't have the async keyword on a trait defined method? You know, for example, you, you know that's currently not permitted. And it's a natural thing that you want to express, and there are workarounds for that. But it's just something that um, the language currently doesn't support. So, you know, async await is a work in progress, um, and it's it's not completely there. But by God, it's usable, right? And yeah. it works incredibly well. Um, and so, uh, one of the fun things I've, I do a lot of embedded programming as well on the metal, uh, which I love because you know all problems tend to become my own problems rather than any other layer between me and the processor. Uh, so I, I do quite enjoy that, and I'm using a um, a framework, uh, a Rust framework called Embassy, which is a uh, async executor for uh, um, for on the metal devices, um, and we're dealing here with chips that have a single core. Uh, very limited resources, you know, and we can use async await in that context. And the beautiful thing about this and why it's important, right, to come back to the why, is why, why is concurrency important, right, is because it assists with energy efficiency, right? This is the big why. So we could be blocked waiting on reading from, you know, the serial port on the UART, for example, um, but still able to go and do other things, other tasks can progress um, and keep that process of core running and hot. Um, not physically hot, right? But just run, you know, yeah. processes are good when they're running. They're not good at idling. I mean, if you idle, you know, they, they take time to start up and do their thing and so forth. So you want to keep them warm when you're doing stuff. So the more warm you can keep them, the more things you can throw at a processor at one time then the more efficient they are. And then in, well, in my world in particular, where the, you know, some things are running off a watch battery, your batteries are lasting a year or two years or three years, right? 
and it makes a big difference. Um, so earlier, so it's you like, know, like I, you want to do as much in parallel or whatever as you can so that then you get it all done and then the processor can go into idle for a while and then exactly. when it has work to do, let's get as much done all at once as possible. And so then you're go back saying when idle. the processor is not idling, it's using roughly the same amount of energy. And so you might as well get as much done rather than having it. Uh, sit like yeah, you've, exactly. you've put it okay. into the higher power states, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so yes. you might as well maximize that I capacity Yes. at that time rather than sequentially building up a bunch of tasks which are yes. all going to keep the cpu running yes. and running for a longer amount of time that's mm. exactly it right and mm. i just want to just pick you up on one word parallel it's not parallel it's concurrent right and uh, again we're dealing with single cores here and people uh it, you know it takes some time to understand that distinction between being concurrent and parallel uh, i think um the, the work that's being done on the JVM now with continuations uh, and so forth, you know, with its async await sort of approach is to me more about concurrency than parallelism. And yes. uh, that's a good thing. You know, it's a very, very good thing um, because it leads to the same sort of outcome. So, so here's my sort of mad focus, you know, and, and you know, maybe listeners will go, well, you know, you're running embedded stuff that you got to think about that all the time, but you know what, you write services in this way, you know, for, small resource constrained environments. And when you get to write services for, you know, uh, environments with seemingly infinite resources, which is a myth, you know, cause they're all fine. Um, then things tend to run extremely well. Right. So, yeah. um, when, uh, when I deploy, uh, to a new farm or something like that, you know, um, then I can choose the smallest, uh, CP virtual CPU on offer by my data center and uh you know that there's an economic you benefit feel good about that that you've not had to scale up to this massive machine to yeah. handle a workload that you could do the same work with a lot less resources and that that feels wow. good I can't, money. Get a machine, <laughs> I can't get a machine in with my current um uh retailer of machines uh, that's less than one gig of memory i don't even need a gig you know give me like you know, half a gig of RAM or less or 256 meg of RAM, you know, that's, I, I just give me one of those, but you can see, you can understand here what the environmental impacts of that are too, right? We need then less, our data centers don't need to be as big. I'm sorry, James, this is a terrible idea from a Google's perspective, right? But we, we you I'm know, not on Google we, Cloud anymore, so. <laughs> <laughs> but we can, we can make our data centers small again, right? You know, and I, really I could go on about uh, how we have to improve uh, the, the way we produce energy on the planet and so forth. Um, but, and, and food reduction, you know, we, we generate far more food than what we actually need on this planet right now. I know there is starvation in some countries and it's disproportionate and so forth, but, you know, countries like the US and Australia, I know here we generate three times the amount of food that we need to. So the, uh, the, the, the point is that there's a lot we can do also about becoming more efficient in what we do. And I think that in our world, we have a responsibility of also running our programs more efficient, efficiently. Right. And we should stop and think about the memory uh, that we're using and the CPU that we're utilizing and all those things. Right. Um, so that we can have this positive impact uh, into our world. So there you go. I'm going to get off my soapbox here a little bit now.
but that, that's what's driving me a, a, a great deal. Um, there are other um, benefits when you get into the embedded world of uh, being, well, we mentioned battery efficiency, of course, you know, but um, heat, heat is the destroyer of circuits, right, uh, of boards. So if you can run cool, uh, even when you're maxing out your activities, then uh, your your products, your components will last a great deal longer as well. So there are actually some real strong economic drivers uh, that you you sort of uh, you benefit from here as well. Yeah, yeah. So we've so written like rust, have we? <laughs> yeah, no. So so a lot of your why is uh, is on the efficiency side of things, and and that that makes sense. What about your what about the efficiency of your time? How do you feel developer productivity has has changed as you've gone into Rust compared to other languages? Um, gee, that's a good question. You know, because there's a lot of argument. Uh, I think also there has been a lot of argument in the past with Scala and other lang- languages, you know, not being as as productive. You know, but I think that is just uh, largely a function of how much time you spend with a given language and its tool cha- chain. I mean, all of these things. Library ecosystem and some of that too. I think, I think how long do you how long do you spend between cycles? <laughs> Yeah, I, and I, I see people complain about um, compile times with, with Rust, you know, um, and I'm thinking, I, I just, I, I kind of don't understand that. Uh, yes, we'd all like everything to be instant, but it's, uh, you know, you compare that with this compile times of a lot of JVM stuff, right? It's a lot, lot, lot faster than that. So I find that I'm... I'm I'm very productive. And on occasion, I do have to go back into the JVM world and so forth. So I, I get to make these direct comparisons, in, you know, and uh, I think the Rust story is very, very good in terms of its tool chain and, and so forth. It, when you hear you know, a lot about Rust, uh, error messages, compile error messages as being extremely helpful, and yeah. that probably saves a lot of time. It's like, oh, okay, that's what I need to do here. Well, what Rust error messages uh, tend to do, and you know, they, they, this is ongoing work. Um, but what they tend to do is tell you what the problem is, right, and then they tell you how to fix it. You know, yeah. in, in the same error message. So it's very um, instructive in terms of what yeah. it what it thinks you should do to fix it. Hmm. Yeah, and it, again, it's not perfect, right, by a long shot. I'm not trying to paint that picture here, you know, but that is definitely. The, the you know the goal of the activity in that regard to you know keep those messages um, uh, uh, you know to be helpful and there's a tool uh, that you know has to be part of everyone's tool belt uh, when using Rust called Clippy okay and Clippy is a, a bit of a linter right and it just goes through you know it'll just it'll point out a lot of stuff the compiler won't. But you, you get it, you know, in the Rust tool chain itself. And when learning Rust, in, I mean, it, you know, it re, well, when learning Rust in particular, it's fabulous. It really is kind of representative of, you know, well, Microsoft Clippy wasn't that great last phase, was it? You know, but it was trying to on that, but it's actually good. It's actually helpful. Well, it's trying. Yeah, it is. It's incredibly helpful, right? And I, I think that's probably like the number one tool. I, I've actually um, uh, brought people onto projects, several people now onto projects, 
that have never used Rust before. And I've been here to sort of help them through that. And none of them have had any, uh, any problem at all. You know, one was uh, a guy that had um, only ever done TypeScript, nothing else, right? Um, another guy, um, uh, a, a lady, I should say, she had only done, uh, well, she'd done some C++, but she mostly did Python. And um, we were doing a machine learning based project actually with that one. And, uh, and I give her, you know, this task to, to, uh, to write this little engine. And she did that in, in, and I said, look, you know, do it in Rust, give it a go, see what you think. And anyway, she got through that, no problem at all. Um, and then, you know, a current colleague of mine, uh, Scala background um, has had no issues uh, either. And may maybe it's because the, I'm around and, you know, we can sort of help each other a little bit, but, um, you know, we've used, uh, let, actually, if I could just explain where I've used Rust. So I mentioned embedded already. So there's been a lot of embedded work, um, which is good. You know, I can, I, we have these electric vehicle chargers that we're building right now. It's kind of cool. It's a whole different conversation maybe, but, um, you know, our programs on there, you know, the whole EV charger is 120K in size, you know, and it's just, it's, you know, we're back to that. We're back to sort of the, the size of C programs, um, not C++. It's even, you know, it, it outperforms C++ in this regard. Um, uh, very well. constrained, yeah. Yeah, so that's nice, you know, but my, my, my services on embedded Linux devices are around about 8 to 10K of memory uh, in total, you know, but these are full-blown microservices doing Kafka-like kind of things, but, you know, not really Kafka. So, you know, you've, you've got those efficiencies. But um, so I'm using it for back-end services, and and I know this came up. I think it was last week, right? WebAssembly. So Rust is probably one of the um, the best uh, languages to use on the WebAssembly target right now. You know, um, so I've deployed um, three uh, applications to production using Rust and WebAssembly, and um, and using a uh, a web framework called U as in Y-E-W, um, and uh, which is very React-like, but all written in Rust and WebAssembly. Uh, and, that's and it's been an enjoyable experience. Yeah. You feel productive, and and WASM is obviously fast, or at least theoretically fast. And Yeah. yeah. Again, yeah. For, for me, it's about correctness. I just, uh, you know, if I... You know, I, I probably will diss JavaScript here a little bit now. You know, but if it's not one language I never want to use again, it's it's probably going to be that one. Um, yeah. I miss completely. Too many foot guns. Too What's many that? foot guns in JavaScript. Yeah, yeah, and you know me, James. You know, when back at TypeSafe, you know, I was pretty big on JavaScript. Uh, you, you know, you you uh, do you still maintain web jars to today? Oh yeah. Yep, still maintaining web jars. Yep, it's the, the ball and chain, you know. It's, don't ever do open source. Don't ever do successful open source because then, then it just becomes also, uh, and, and, takes and all you your free Josh, time. And then you had Josh on a few weeks ago, which uh, I also yeah. really enjoyed. I, I Talking love about Josh. Build tools. Uh, Speaking of that, let's. I want to hear your take on Cargo because you've you've used many many build tools, and I hear mm. really good things about Cargo. Is it really good, and and why? Um, is it really good? Yes, is the answer to that. Why? Oh, gosh. Um, so 
Because I think it allows you to do the simple things simply and the difficult things can still be done, right? I think that's the essence of a build tool, is it not, right? Where you do not want to invest your time into understanding the build tool. You really just, (laughs) (laughs) you really want the most... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As software engineers, we generally don't want to be build engineers. We don't. I mean, gosh, it's, you know, we've got enough things to do, haven't we? Really, you know, it's like, why do I, it's kind of like having to know the internals of Postgres to use it. I mean, why would yeah. you want to do that, right? Yeah. Um, so, that, so I think that if you, you know, that that sweet spot is really just expressing the bare minimum, um, which is, you know, quite declarative um, in TOML file format. You're, in essence, just describing the, the targets that you intend to build for and your dependencies, your development dependencies. So it's and like make. <laughs> like make. Well, I, I use a lot of make as well. I, I think it's a lot simpler than make even. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, you know, the thing is with make is um, it very quickly becomes complex. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Kind of hit the wall and then right, and then Because have to... they tried to only solve the really simple problem and then they had to start adding stuff on mm-hmm. to solve the more complicated things. And so it sounds like Cargo was designed like from top to bottom all at once. And so they give you a progression. Yeah. Yeah. We we have to acknowledge here that Rust and Cargo and, um, you know, the other associated components of the tool chain have all had the benefit of everything that's come before it. Right. Right. You know, these things have not been invented in a vacuum. I think actually if you, um, sorry, just to quickly jump back onto the language for a second, but if you're a Scala developer going to Rust, I don't. I think you see a lot of familiar things, really. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. as you do with other languages too. So it's not been developed in in a vacuum, and in, in its current communities, I think you know. Well, fairly- you, you say that, and yet you know there are languages that should benefit from all the languages that come before them, but choose not to. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. Yeah. So it's a it's quite a good choice to to yeah. really study all the languages that came before and learn from them. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, also, I, I think Rust fits into that category of being a derivative of ML, right? That's I think it's in that same family tree, uh, which is, Bruce, I know to your heart, is, uh, you know, you, I know you're fond of expression-oriented languages. It is an expression-oriented language. Um, huh. albeit with a very sensitive, touchy topic coming up, it does have semicolons. Oh, my God. Yeah, but, you know, it, I know how you feel about this, you know, because I've been listening. Right? But, I, uh, it sounds like something I would use. I have done an experiment with it using um, with a friend where we created a, a Python extension using the Rust, um, I think it's called Pyodide or Pyo3 or something like that. And it was just marvelously put together. And if I was to need to write a Python extension, I believe I would use Rust for that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Despite the yeah. semicolons, at least it's expression oriented, which yeah. I, I don't know, maybe 
I can live with the yeah. semicolons. I just, I, I'm always disappointed if a new language chooses to use semicolons. It's, it's too bad. Yeah. But, um, but I can live with it when it gives you a lot of other good stuff. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's one knock against it, but there's so many other good things mm-hmm. in Rust that mm-hmm. outweigh it, like expression oriented, yeah. um, type classes, well, which, well, again, and, and, you you got to know, again, I think it's important to understand your why, why you're using it, right? Because that will often trump the semicolon. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mean you don't choose your language purely based on whether or not it has semicolons? It's not, that's not the, the motivating factor. I find lack of semicolons encouraging, for sure. Yeah. It means, it means the, the compiler writer isn't just thinking about themselves. They're thinking <laughs> that's about me. We want uh, unselfish compiler authors. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 again, I was torn, uh, you know, having to make the decision of, um, yeah, leaving the JVM number one for for a what you know for I think hopefully I've conveyed why, um, but also Scala as well. I'm still fond of it. You know, it's still fond of of the language, and uh, you know the semicolon thing used to really irritate me uh, as well. Um, but I, again, my my other goals have sort of trumped it. A little bit. Yeah. I can't say oh, sure. Trump in U.S. Sorry, I do apologize. Uh, <laughs> we don't use that word. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's yeah. just always trade-offs that that we make, and uh, I just saw somebody on Twitter saying how in Rust they really missed the Scala standard library because the Scala standard library is so expansive and so many collection operations, and you know, you just anything you want to do in a collection, there's this high level function for, um, and in Scala. And so they, they missed the, the expansiveness of the Scala standard library in rest. So, but there's just trade-offs, right? Like you, you take yeah. some baggage with, with that large standard library. You, you do. Uh, actually, I saw that tweet also. And I, you know, I know who it is. Um, so uh, I, I think, uh, you know, that may also come into the category of, um, you know, trees trying to look at Rusters being Scala. It's not, okay, just as Scala is not Haskell, right? But look at the yeah. friction that has caused, you know, in the past as well. Yeah. So I think that you've got to, again, go into it with eyes wide open and just, you know, be prepared to, uh, you know, start over on a few concepts again, perhaps, you know, because I don't find the um, standard library limiting in any way. Not huh. not really. Um, yeah. You know, I just wouldn't be getting... For what you're trying to accomplish, it's sufficient. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it, it's but having said that, the Scala standard library is beautiful. You know, it it's beautifully thought out and evolved. You know, and I don't want to take anything away from that either. But I wouldn't yeah. try to. I've seen some attempts um, at retrofitting the Scala library into Rust, and just not being um, received. Like immutable collections, for example, I'd not seen as as being important and you know one important thing about rust is that it's it's not what i would call a functional language at all um you know it has immutability by default sure you know but the the important point is that you can reason about its imperativeness that's the important point um and why we are attracted to functional programming is so we can reason about our code 
Okay, so you you know it's found a way. I feel that you can reason about being imperative, and being imperative is very useful at times. As is the case also with the implementation of parts of the Scala standard library. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, Russ, reasonably imperative is should be the tagline. So here's a weird out left field question: Does Rust have a yield keyword, or does it support the idea of generators? Yeah, this is a work in progress. Oh, they're um, thinking about it. Oh, they're more than thinking about it. So, uh, Rust has. Uh, a incredibly powerful macro system mm -hmm. and you can already using the async uh i think it's just no hang on uh no it's called the stream macro in tokyo which is one of the popular executors for rust you can already use the yield keyword in there so you can indeed create generators I believe that in the standard library, um, that we we have a type called, uh, well, we have a trait called future. Uh, we also had one called stream, and that has been renamed now to, I think, async iterator, I think. Um, and the purpose of that is to move it towards being able to introduce the yield keyword. Right. But if you use the stream macro today, and I am, um, you can use the yield keyword in there because you can actually invent your own bits of language if you want. So I had this middle of the night <clears throat> thought that a generator or a, a queue is a degenerate case of a generator. So in you know, you put things in, you get things out. Mm -hmm. And the queue is like, well, you don't transform it in, in the in the interim. Is that am I am I crazy to say that or am I onto something? Uh, might I have to sleep on that longer. <laughs> anyway, maybe you'll wake up in the middle of the night now going, Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um yeah. Uh, I I I'm gonna just ponder that one if I may, you know, please. Yeah. I'd be curious. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this was just one of those things that popped into my head while I'm thinking about all this concurrency stuff. And, uh, so, um, I mean, async away, um, plus, you know, what we're talking about here with generators really, again, the, the, the outcome of all of that is that you can write really nice code, right. Without, you know, you can look at that piece of code and again, reason about what's going on fairly quickly rather than jumping about bits of code and trying to infer what's happening there. So that's, you know, what they're bringing to the table. And you can all, you can do that today with Rust. But I, I don't, again, want to paint the picture that this is a um, finished and polished aspect of Rust. It, it is definitely work in progress. And sometimes the reason things take so long um, is because, you know, there's a lot of thinking to be done you know, on how to do it. And they want to do it really well, um, I feel. So well, I think yeah, Python, it took them three times to get it right. Hmm. Right. Lots yeah. of iterations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 
And, and, you know, but it's nice, isn't it? You know, I mean, I've, I've used generators in, in Python in the past as as well, right? Um, very elegant. So it's very elegant. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's definitely a case. You know, I also thought I'd, I would really miss, and maybe I do, you know, Acker Streams. Um, I know you guys are into uh, ZIO. Um, I I guess I've sort of departed from the JVM, so I've not, I've heard very good things said about ZIO. Um, but it's a nice way to program, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Being stream oriented programming. Yeah. 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 Aka yeah. streams and, and Zio streams are, are pretty similar in terms of the, the kind of developer experience of, of doing transforms on a stream and yeah. so many different ways you can do the transforms, but yeah. 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 That is so, a nice programming model when you have a stream and need to convert it to another stream. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I think yeah, there's there's um, you know perhaps a, a bit of growth there to be had on on the Rust side of the fence, you know, to sort of uh, you know get that experience. But it's it's not. Or have, but having said that, it's not something that I feel is so missing that I've had to go and do something about it necessarily, right? Yeah. So um, sure. But I do appreciate it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, any uh, closing thoughts on on Rust? I think um, for me, if I'm going to mess with it, I think I'm going to do it with you. Was the name <laughs> of the Web Wasm framework you yeah. said? Is yeah, that right? yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, a good it, way it, for it, me to get into it. Yeah, and you can also do it with me, as in you, as in me. Um, That's right. So, with you and with you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think it, it is a good way of getting into it. Um, the there's a lovely tool also called Trunk, um, which, um, I mean, you can basically write HTML, CSS, and .rs code and use Trunk, and there's not a line of JavaScript going on at all, right? In, in your I think Bottle, um, I don't know if you know Bottle, but but I think uh, Bottle has has done a bunch of work in that area, and I see a number of tweets about, about um, being able to build a full-on web app and only write Rust, and that okay. seems compelling to me because I don't want to touch HTML or CSS or yeah. JavaScript or any of those other things. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually don't have a problem with HTML and CSS. I mean, I I, I do have a general sort of uh, comment, you know, that uh, we bent a document-oriented model to to run applications. You know, I think. That's that could be improved, and we've tried to improve that over the years with um, Mozilla's XUL and you know other approaches. Android uses XML, of course, you know, to express its UI and has done so successfully. So, well, um, now that Compose is the new uh, Kotlin-based model, but anyway, that's okay. a conversation for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just quickly, I did in, enjoy my Android uh, development. I mean, during the pandemic, uh, I kind of just said yes to everything, you know, because you know, why not? And uh, and so I ended up uh, developing a an Android tablet based app that obviously was developed in Kotlin. I loved its coroutines and doing stuff there with its coroutines as well, and. Um, and that was a good experience. And I, I thought the out-of-box developer experience, uh, the whole Android Studio thing was really good. You know, I thought nice. they, they did there. a really good job. And I didn't have to spend a lot of time in Gradle, understanding Gradle, because I'm not a Gradle <laughs> expert at all, 
right? Nobody uh, is. You guys were talking about Gradle the other way too, but I didn't have to spend a lot of time there, you know, other than yeah. adding the occasional yeah. dependency. So I got maybe yeah. I got lucky. Um, did but, you see on a side note? Did you see? Uh, I just happened to see this that the Android native development kit now has Rust support. So yeah, if you want to that. go back, I'd like to hear your comparison between the Kotlin experience and then you doing Rust for Android. If you ever get around well, to trying that, it's so it's 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 just back in. So you know how with Android you can develop uh, native code using C They've got a toolkit yeah. for that. Yeah. That's what yeah. they've already. That's what they've also supported using Rust, not yeah. the UI component, right? So right, UI right, right. component yeah. you're still doing yeah. in Kotlin and stuff. Um, they, they've. I, I saw a GitHub issue with a whole raft of dot points of this is what needs to be done to get to that point. So obviously they're thinking about it. I think that would huh. be very, very interesting, you know. And yeah. uh, I know people that have used Rust on iOS with great success huh. as well. Huh. Um, I personally used to write uh, apps that would be front-ended with uh, Objective-C, for example, but then have a common C++ library. Uh, yeah. You know, so you, you could definitely do that right now yeah. uh, with, with Rust if you wanted to. So, um, yeah, but I thought the, the Android developer experience was good, but I didn't finish telling you what the app was. This oh, yeah. Very good. That's right. yeah. So, so it, was, um, it was for hospitals, right, because we all wanted to do something. And it used um, machine learning face detection to understand that when someone was at, uh, in front of a basin, right, washing their hands, and it would face detect them looking down and doing all sorts of gestures to then guide them through the hash, hand washing process, right? And then record compliance because you've got to be there for like 20 seconds, you know. And this is in a hospital, so you know, you wash your hands properly, you know, in certain ways. So it played a video of how you should do that. Not that even, you know, doctors and nurses, they, they've got a pretty good idea already. But what was interesting was, you know, 20 seconds in your head is not 20 seconds, right? And so this thing recorded that compliance and uh, it was a very interesting project. And it, it got deployed to a couple of hospitals and uh, schools. Um, but uh, that, yeah, that's that was cool. that was Kotlin and that's Android. A fun project. It was nice. good. Yeah, yeah, it's a good yeah, COVID project good. to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some good ones. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, electric, um, electric vehicle chargers. No, that's my current thing. But anyway, maybe that's the oh, the electric car chargers. Yeah, yeah, that sounds yeah. fun. Yeah, that's fun as well. Yeah, but, embedded yeah. programming is it's really fun. There's something cool about being able to control hardware at that level. Yeah. And very finicky as well. That's yeah. where I started. So. Yeah. Right. But I was yeah. doing assembly language embedded programming and some C. Yeah. 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 So yeah. like logic analyzers to see if your software was working right. Yeah. It's cool to be close you to mentioned that. also that you studied physics as well, Bruce. Is that right? As an undergraduate, physics and then morphed into engineering. Ah, right. I was going to say, I mean, some of the best programmers I know on the planet uh, you have a physics background. Right. I yes. I agree. Some of yeah. the other best programmers I know. <laughs> not, <laughs> not yeah. I I don't uh, I I don't know where I fit myself, but I've just seen physicists in particular just seem to pick. Yeah. Maybe it's because we're used to struggling with hard problems. Yeah. Mark Hara, who created SBT, he has a physics yes. background. Well, I, uh, I was... Mark Flurry, who uh, founder of JBoss, has a physics background. Mm -hmm. um, those are the Jason Van Zyl, who created oh, Maven. Van Zyl, JVZ, 
Yeah. 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 So uh, yeah, they're all interested. Yeah. What's, yeah. What's going on? I, I was so excited earlier this year. My uh, eldest daughter left school and she went to go and study physics at uni, right? Oh. And uh, I was so excited. I thought, right, she's going to become a programmer. Uh, but no, I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for sharing your journey and wisdom with us, and um, and definitely gives me some encouragement to try rest and uh, and learn learn it and learn from it. So thanks for. Oh, uh, well, thank you. It's been so lovely to. Well, I can see you both, which is great. Yeah. You know, um, but just to sort of uh, catch up, and it's such a privilege to be on this uh, podcast as well. So I really appreciate <laughs> that. But fun to I chat. Think- you know, yeah, I just want us to say, stay curious, you know, I mean, uh, you know, anything I've said, there's nothing perfect about what I'm suggesting here at all, right, or talking about, um, but, you know, staying curious is what, you know, our good friend Jonas would always say, right, Jonas Benet, yeah. Uh, yeah. stay curious, and, uh, you know, that's where it's at. Yeah, nice to do that. Thanks. Right. No worries. Good to talk. <laughs>